Hey everyone, do you like having ready-to-cook meals shipped to you every week? Are you looking for an automated email newsletter service? How about flowers? Do you ever order those online? Do you ever find yourself in the mood to order some impossibly comfortable underwear? Well, have I got the product for you. Actually, I don't. The reason I don't is because we don't have those kinds of ads on this podcast. We've actually been offered uh, some ad space and I didn't take it. Why not? Because I like the show to be entirely 100% supported by listeners. It allows us to uh, pay our bills, gives us free time to make all the podcasts, and it spares you guys from having to listen to dumb ads every five minutes where I'm selling some dumb product, reading dumb copy from some dumb company, and it's a product I've never actually used and I can't endorse. But anyway, if you enjoy the show and you want it to continue being ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash file. Even a dollar a month, it sounds like a cliche marketing uh, garbage, but even a dollar a month is really helpful on Patreon. And uh, it all goes a long way to helping the show maintain its consistency and release schedule and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm aware that the uh, the irony of this is basically an ad, and I promise I'll do things like this only every once in a while. But still, if you go to patreon.com slash the Penske file, you can support the show. It's much appreciated. All right, on to it. Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're entering season two of DS9. And this one is the first episode of season two. It's the first in a three-arc, three-episode arc called the Bajoran Coup Arc, I think is what the official name is. This one is called The Homecoming. It it was uh, the first episode of season two, written by Iris Stephen Bear. Story credit goes to Jerry Taylor Taylor and Iris Stephen Bear. Directed by Weinrich Colby. It aired on September 26, 1993. In this episode, Kira rescues a Bajoran resistance hero from a Cardassian labor camp. An extremist group calls for all non-Bajorans to leave Bajor. It's called The Homecoming. We're joined by Clay. Clay, how are you? Good. I haven't, um, you know, I, I'm just getting back to DS9 for a while, So after a while, so it's nice to see uh, Quark's David Duchovny-looking brother again. Yeah, with, with, the, with the weird speech pattern. His name is Rom. Uh, we get a little bit of Rom, we get a little bit of Quark in, in this episode. We get a little bit of everybody because it's kind of the you know the season kickoff. Everyone wants to get a little bit excited and get involved in these things. But um, yeah, this is the first of a three-episode arc. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Homecoming, the first one, and this one. And before we get to that, I just wanted to say that we have a survey up uh, for feedback about the podcast. And if you enter it and you fill out all the things, you get a chance to win the complete DVD set for DS9. So if people haven't done that yet... Click on the little link in the video description or the little podcast blurb. It'll bring you there. Fill out the survey. It's about eight questions, and you can enter for a chance to win the DVD set. And, which, it's, and it's only DVD because they are never putting this out on Blu-ray, No, right? unfortunately. Apparently, it's a lot of work for this series for some reason to turn it into high definition. for The, the way that they mastered it or whatever originally makes it very uh, difficult to actually remaster at this point. Well, it's kind of a weird time. You know, technology-wise, so sure. I could see them screwing something up. Like I know, I, I know people who have recorded things on certain kinds of video, and it's like, well, I just, I can never put this on anything because the file, the the formatting doesn't transfer to whatever the modern stuff is. So who knows? Yeah, apparently, uh, it's. I think it's something to do with the special effects in this, the way that they were like yeah. composited into the film or something, so you can't lift them out very easily uh, when you're re-editing and, and stuff, the way the TNG was, but. Anyway, we're going to get into the homecoming, fill out the survey, all that stuff. Me and Clay are going to be back uh, right after this break. My reputation even followed me into the labor camp where my mere presence seemed to inspire my fellow prisoners. And I had done nothing 
but shoot an unarmed Cardassian in his underwear. I'll never forget the look on his face when he died. He was so embarrassed. So you see, Commander, I have done what Bajor needed me to do. I have allowed myself to be a slave to my reputation all of these years. And now it is enough. All right, Clay, so a little bit of feedback. Since we're starting season two, I'll give a little bit of season two information. It aired concurrently with uh, TNG's season seven, which is interesting. You know, obviously the previous season aired with season six, which is one of Mm -hmm. TNG's best, and DS9 season one was not particularly good. Michael Piller is still the showrunner. A little bit of trivia for people. This is the only season that the prophets do not actually appear on screen, which is interesting. Um, So I'll, I'll, I'll fire it off to you with this, Clay. At the end of the season one, Michael Piller, the showrunner, directed the writing staff to concentrate on the show's uniqueness for season two and to let go of any links to the universe of TNG. As such, the season's first episode, the writers chose to do a show which couldn't be done on TNG, an episode which was completely unique to the world of Deep Space Nine. So irrespective of any quality of the episode, which we're going to get into, do you think that they succeeded in that goal with this episode, this opening uh, shot from them? Oh, I think so, because I, I don't think at, on TNG at any point um, Picard would have given his son advice on how to squirrel away with a woman. <laughs> I, I thought it was a bold move on Jake's part to just say, I'm going to bring her to the fucking suck program yeah. at Quark's Bar. That's a, uh, that's a bold... Well, what's what's great is, is Jake's like, I'm going to bring her back to my room. And he's like, you can't do that. All right, I'm going to bring her down to whatever the makeout spot is. No, you can't do that. Just say you're going to bring her upstairs. <laughs> What? Okay, Dad. Stand on the promenade. Yeah, that's a. um, We'll get into the Jake and Cisco relationship uh, as it moves along. Obviously, I I I have thoughts. I don't know if this episode. Well, this one kind of does, but maybe it'll probably wrap up that way with my thoughts on Jake and uh, Cisco. But Uh, um, yeah, but in all seriousness, yeah, I I think uh, I I really like this episode. Um, I feel like it's it's the kind of thing that they may have wanted to try to do a little bit in TNG, but never really went uh, uh, whole hog into. Um, and I liked it because they managed to do a prime directive kind of story um, without explicitly using the prime directive because it's not really applicable here. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess later on we find out it, it kind of is. But uh, no, it was a good, it was a good, interesting uh, uh, ethical quandary um, for for Cisco, uh, which which I was. Uh, which I was into, and I really like the idea of, you know, what if your revolutionary figure doesn't want to be a revolutionary anymore, or maybe never was right. a revolutionary. I thought that was really interesting too. It's it's unique that it's the it's the very first three parter of a Star Trek series. They would do one. Oh, again. they've never they've never done three parters. No, no series show? has done a three parter before this one. You could kind of consider Best of Both Worlds and Family to maybe be one, but it's not really the same story. It's just kind of a connected episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first one where it's two be two to be continued in a row, one after the other. Um, and I think that the you know there's this episode reminded me a lot of ways just on a technical aspect of when we started TNG season three, right? The first episode of season th- season three of TNG is not a great episode of the show by any stretch, but when you come in out of season two and you watch the first episode of season three, it's almost like it's a totally different show. On some yeah. level, like everything looks different. The characters look different. The interactions are different. The scripts are different. The way the characters move and talk to each other. The filming is different. And I was really surprised by how different this episode of DS9 looked from the first season. It feels like 
everyone had a chance to sort of settle into what they're doing. Mm-hmm. This episode has a lot of character interactions that I don't feel they got anywhere near close to doing in the first season between people. Mm-hmm. And the actors all seem much more settled into the characters where it feels like these people have worked with each other for a little bit of time and that they know each other. There's like a deeper a deeper relationship going on between everybody. And I don't know. I, I, I thought it was a I thought there was a big quality jump in from season one to this one, even I won't say this episode is outstanding or anything. I think it's very, very solid. But I, I just the technical aspects and the way that the show feels to me feels much more like DS9. And that was kind of my question going in about whether or not the show set itself apart from TNG. I feel like this is the show very much setting itself apart. And it's doing something where the this kind of storytelling doesn't really work on TNG for a lot of different mm-hmm. reasons. Like you can't, they're building off of this existing Bajor thing they're going with a sort of a Starfleet crew that is not directly always in contact with Starfleet. They're kind of on their own in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And the character interactions are people who some people don't like each other. There's a little bit of there's a little bit of tension between the characters. And I think everything comes together in Homecoming, which is this one. Would you would you think? Do you have anything else to say about that? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think I think they're definitely leaning into the stuff that makes it Deep Space Nine versus the stuff that made TNG, TNG. Like, it didn't... This episode already doesn't feel like, you know, today's episode is going to be about Cisco, and then the B episode is going to be about something wacky happening on... Like, it, it all felt a lot more natural. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it feels... The stuff they're dealing with is stuff that is explicitly Deep Space Nine stuff. Um, you know, they don't get into the... Uh, the the prophets and stuff as much in this episode, but just the that that uh, the Bajoran characters and the Cardassian and the, and the conflicts and all that kind of that stuff is more or less exclusive to DS Nine. Yeah, and uh, I like that they're they're leaning on the stuff that they 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 know that they can do well at this point. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I think everyone seems pretty comfortable. It feels a lot more like an ensemble cast where everybody's kind of getting a little bit to do, and none of it really feels out of place. Um, the only thing that kind of felt well, I guess it's not really out of place, but like the the Ode, the opening Odo and Quark scene almost feels a little out of place because the rest of it is so kind of uh, everybody just sort of like works together yeah, to right, form right. the story. That that that's I mean that scene pays off a little bit better in the in the next episode. Um, but yeah, that one felt like it was a it was a bit of a relic from the previous way of doing things, where it's like here's the Quark and Odo scene. That we do in every episode. Yes. Uh, but here they do at the beginning to kind of kick things off. Yeah. yeah they, it, it did have a different feel overall. I liked it. They kind of flip it in the Odo scene where it's Quark actually did something good for him. And I, I guess it's it's just kind of fleshing out the character of Quark will feed Odo a little bit. Like the, the relationship those two have is just kind of a, a back and forth give and take between the two but, of them. But then he blows it when he uh, tries to Weinstein his way into Kira's room. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he does. He does a very poor job of, uh, of getting to that. A lot more... Um, I don't think we've seen anybody's quarters in the first season. We see a lot of people's quarters in these first couple episodes here. So that's like new sets and everything. That you had, you had mentioned in Emissary, you weren't particularly impressed with the uh, sort of production design of things. You thought it was kind of bland. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I feel like they're they're adding places like hallways and quarters, and the lighting on the station is totally different from TNG, and everything's very dark on DS9. Yeah. What I what I have started to notice, um, I assume this is intentional. 
is that they give certain elements that they come back to a lot a very specific look. So you kind of know immediately where they are, um, even if you don't entirely know where it is in relationship to anything else. So, like, uh, the one that pops out right away is that gigantic, like, red cog-looking door that is the uh, the place everybody comes in through. Oh, yeah, it's like the, the uh, boarding door. It's where the ship's yeah, dock, yeah. It's a very it's a very unique-looking door. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a normal Star Trek door. Yeah, right. So... Anytime I see that, I don't know where that is on the space station. I have no idea where it is on the space station. But as soon as I see that, I know where they are. Yeah. Um, and the same with uh, Cisco's room, too. He's got a very kind of weird, like, golden door yep. kind of thing, yep. which is v- very unique. And so, you know, I, I it's easy to – it's just things that your your brain kind of picks up on to, to place you in – into different rooms, which I think is a, is a smart call because there is so much stuff going on. Yeah, on the and set. I, I think a lot of it is the it's obviously all Cardassian architecture, right? Like when they when they transport in this series, it's with the Cardassian transporter effect, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Cisco's the, the. Oh, really? You know, I actually don't know if I ever thought about that, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's like a yellowy different color, and um, when they Cisco's office is laid out in the I think they've mentioned this in the traditional uh, gull. Uh, a Cardassian architecture where the person in command hovers above everyone else and looks down at the underlings. His office is oh. like perched above things. Um, I like Cisco's office though. It's kind of there's a lot of good ways to shoot in that room because it's very big. It's different from the ready room, which uh, Picard's ready room basically had like the two angles he could look at if you were filming in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one feels a little better. So we'll talk about Homecoming, the episode, which is basically. You know, the main backbone of this one is the character of Lee Nollis, right? It's his sort of this Bajoran war hero who was captured and his redemption or non-redemption by the end of it. And then he'll feed into season two, uh, episode two, which is the circle. So I guess- Great episode. Great episode for guest stars, too, because he's good. That's, uh, you know, Ben Horn from Twin Peaks. Yep, yep. Uh, and also, surprise appearance by Frank Langella, which I was very excited about. That sure. guy's the man. He Love is, that guy. Langella is. I didn't. I didn't really recognize him when I was watching this, but he. He was, in my opinion, he was clearly the best of the guest actors that they had. Oh yeah. And yeah, uh, he's, he's apparently he's, Academy he's awesome. Award nominated and everything. He's been in a bunch of movies and film and theater and everything. He like played that. Skeletor in Masters of the Universe. Yeah, that's right. And he was a, the best part of that movie. He was. Uh, he was nominated for. <laughs> Best actor in uh, Frost Nixon. He played Richard Nixon in that mm-hmm. movie. Um, great, great version of Dracula with him from 1982. Yep, yep, that's right. And uh, so, yeah, we have Ben Horn. I forget the actor's name. It's like Richard Leyland or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays Lee Nollis. So we're introduced to a bunch of Bajoran folks. Uh, we're introduced to, you know, we still have the Vedics in the background and everything. And so I guess we'll talk about Lee Nollis here. So... The, his whole general point is that he was a war hero who got captured uh, by the Cardassians and through some sort of deus ex machina, Quark gets an earring that reveals that he is alive and well on this prison planet that the Cardassians have. So Kira and O'Brien get to go and rescue him, and they rescue a whole bunch of Bajorans from that camp. And then they bring him back, and there's uh, he's a little reticent. He seems a little bit unsure of his role. He doesn't seem to match the description of this war hero that the Bajorans have been talking about. And then it's, just, it's revealed that... Um, he is a sort of accidental hero. He's just kind of a soldier who, through a sort of lucky accident, a legend grew out of his actions, and he became a sort of bigger-than-life um, figure for the Bajorans. What would you think of Lee Nollis, and what would you think of his storyline? 
Um, well, until I really registered what his name was, I wrote him down in my notes as Vedic Mandela, <laughs> which, I, which I figured was, I figured described him well enough I could remember it. When's the apartheid um, coming into this storyline? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I thought he, his story was good. Um, I liked what they were doing with him because the way that they play him at the beginning, when you actually start to see him, he he plays off the stories of his his exploits. You know, it seems like he's just trying to be modest, or uh, or he's like shell shocked by the war, kind of, and he doesn't want. Yeah, to, you know, the doctor the doctor is talking about, and he's like, well, you know, this wasn't so great for it. You know, be, being the realist about the legend and all that kind of stuff. And when they give you that twist that he's he's just in that position by dumb luck, I, I thought that was good. Yeah, and I you know, like I said before, I like the idea of. You know, what if your revolutionary hero doesn't want to be a revolutionary anymore? Like, what do you do? And and they they get into another in- interesting conversation at the end with him and him and Cisco about, you know, uh, the Batman legends. conversation. Yeah, basically, yeah, the Dark Knight conversation. And it's you know, and it it brings up an interesting concept of uh, you know, does the does the truth outweigh the legend? Like, if who if he did come clean and explain everything like would that be enough to destroy his name you know what i mean right or or is the legend strong enough that that people would just kind of ignore that or would he come out with the truth and then you know just turn into a pariah so it would it it not change anything is the other option yeah 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 it it, uh it brings up a lot of uh interesting questions as far as that goes and i you know I, i i like that stuff you know i i'm uh i've said a million times i like the bigger ideas and the and the thought experiments and stuff on these shows, and so I appreciated that. Yeah, I think that he's he's interesting to me. I think that it's a uh, uh, that's, that's feedback actually is that I say interesting too much. So it is fascinating. I say it. I say it a lot too. <laughs> so um, the thing the thing about Nalus is that I like the idea of what they're going with, and I like the whole. I like the whole Batman aspect of you know Bajor doesn't need a man. What they need is a symbol at this point. Mm-hmm. I think it works in and of the Bajoran conflict and that it's something that the Bajorans actually would kind of cling to. And the the irrationality of it almost doesn't make sense to me. I like the story that he tells about him. You know, he just kind of falls down a hill and then stumbles into like a Cardassian who's taking a bath and he shoots him. And that's how the story comes about. Mm. But the I sort of I sort of on a like a realistic and let me know if if I think I just need to ignore it and go with the the metaphor more than what actually happens. I find it a little difficult that the legend took off to the extent that it did. <clears throat> like, yeah. he, you know, he he's not. It's it's not like he's a otherwise great general who also has these sort of tall tales that surround him. He he really doesn't give you the impression that he's particularly good at what he was doing. So yeah. it, it's a little bit odd to me that even despite the fact that he's trying to like deny this is happening, the, the legend sort of catches on like wildfire, and maybe that just has to do with the desperation of the Bajorans at that point. But what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I guess when you when you think about it, like we don't really get any other, as far as I can remember, we don't really get any other uh, indication that he was like a great warrior, right? No, they just kind of speak of him as a very sort of important leader of the resistance, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I can uh, I can I can I can get with it for the story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's uh, it maybe realistically it wouldn't have exploded as as large as it did. Um, but, 
you know, I don't know. I think it's Maybe the right. It I mean, let's put it this way: the guy, the guy who started the First World War, who killed Franz Ferdinand, yeah, did it completely by accident, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, that's true. And that guy has a monument to him in uh, I forget where it is, like Slovakia or something like that. I yep. can't remember where he's from. Um, so you know that stuff. That's those sorts of stories. It's like the game of telephone on a global scale. You know, it's it can it can I can I can I can understand it blowing up much much larger than it did. What I can't what I can't get with is as much as I like the Batman conversation, I don't entirely believe that Cisco would give him that advice. Oh, why why is that? I don't know. It just I find it to be his, a very Cisco approach to things, actually. Okay, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe I just don't don't know him well enough yet. But it just, I don't know. It seems like he's so conflicted about getting involved that, you know, uh, um, recommending that this guy go against his better better judgment on things for the sake of for the sake of uh, uh, a, a revolution or something. I don't yeah. know. I just don't. I don't know how I. That it felt like it felt more to me like that was the conversation they wanted them to have for a writer's sake. Yeah, sure. Than, yeah. Uh, than realistically, like realistically in that situation, I don't know if if a commander of a Starfleet uh, space station would do. I don't know. May, who knows? See, I I think that if it, if it was a Picard story, right, Picard would go the other way, and it would be sort of like it's up to Lee Nollis what he wants to do. I think what the show does pretty well here is lays out the fact that Cisco also needs him to be in this role for like the good of what the situation is on the ground. And Cisco to me strikes me as more of a a commander or captain who's willing to he he has a wider moral value set than the other captains do at this point. Mm-hmm. Like he he's much more willing to he he admits to Kira that like the, the Federation needs Bajor to be consolidated as well. Like what the th- the splitting and splintering of stuff that's going on on the planet is no good for anybody. Right. And it's, I think maybe my concern with it would be that Cisco plays it maybe a little bit too earnestly when I do think that there's this underlying selfish need that he has for Lee Nellis to step into this role, and maybe they yeah. could have pushed that a little bit harder. Yeah. Yeah, and I do, you know, I, I do like the conflict that he has uh, uh, about whether or not to basically kind of let Kira f- save him and put their thumb on the scale, and and he thinks about the larger implication. That stuff is really good. So I, I guess, I guess I didn't think about it as much. Uh, I, I guess maybe maybe I should give maybe I should give the the writing of the character a bit more credit then because yeah that seems like a, a decision that he would make that does have that sounds good to Lee Nollis but does have a bit of an underlying uh, selfishness for for Cisco so yeah maybe I'm wrong on that and one and I, I think it's we're not talking about it yet but I think it ties into his approach to the end of the circle where oh, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that but I think that the, the the episodes his decisions kind of mirror each other and what he goes on in that episode those guys are creepy as hell man. <laughs> the masks. Yeah, we'll get yeah. to we'll get to the uh, the circle. But we we the we were introduced alt, alt to the Jorans. Yeah, the <laughs> we're introduced to the uh, the circle in this. Uh, I like the scene where they're introduced, where O'Brien shows them the spray painted uh, logo that they've been spraying around everywhere. Yeah, and Odo, it has a it's it's just a really nice scene that you can tell the directors clearly had a little time to think about. It's Odo, Cisco, and O'Brien are looking at it. And then Odo kind of breaks off and gets into the forefront of the camera shot, and he's looking around suspiciously, like he's looking for what might be going on down there. They have a great conversation that I think really 
splits out those characters well. Cisco sort of takes command of the thing. Odo's very pleased to add more security. That's always kind of an Odo trait. Odo is kind of an authoritarian in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then O'Brien is just kind of there, and then they all they all walk off. I just think I thought it was a very effective scene at identifying all the characters and identifying the plot and working uh, meshing those two things together pretty well. Yeah, I would agree. And this this episode was uh, um, <clears throat> the highlight for me was uh, Undercover O'Brien, which I think should be a uh, Pimp O'Brien. A sp- yeah, I think should be a spinoff. Yeah, because his cut, co- you know, although based, I have to say, based on his costuming, it looks like I can only assume Bajor is full of extras from season three of Miami Vice. Oh, I I think of the the Bajoran outfits kind of remind me of the circus guys who have the monkey with the jukebox kind of yeah. like the, the colored vest. <laughs> that's kind of what they uh, they all remind me of. That's actually the. That's probably my low point of the episode is the uh, their actual rescue on yeah, the planet. That, yeah, when it turns into uh, Rambo, Rambo two. Yeah, and even I think even before that is worse when they just kind of walk up to the prison yeah. camp. <laughs> yeah, that didn't make a ton of sense. Um, the the uh, shit the the number of guards they had there and the fact that yeah what they just. They just walk right up to the gate, and they're like, "Hey, here's a sexy lady." Like I, that whole thing was just it. It didn't. It didn't feel very right. The, like, I, I the Cardassian, like the Cardassian guards don't aren't like halt. You know, at immediately seeing somebody, they're like, "Hey, what's going on? What do you What do you got there? Like, what What are yeah. you doing?" I did like the idea, like the concept of. I mean, again, it's basically the the plot of Rambo Two, where, uh, um, which I'm sure they they sp- specifically ripped off for this. <laughs> uh, where it's they get Kira gets the the earring and it seems like they have a prisoner, but it turns out they have an entire work camp full of prisoners right. where they're not supposed to, and it implies that Cardassians are still involved in this. Like I like that stuff. I like the the, and I also like the way that resolved too. I, where I was expecting, okay, so they find all these prisoners, and well, how are the Cardassians going to respond to that? They're kind of caught red-handed, and they're just but they've already apologized by yeah. the time she gets back to the ship, yeah, and that's yeah. just sort of it. I, I like that. I thought that was kind of refreshing. It's a well, refreshing way to handle that. It's uh, the appearance of Gul Dukat again. Mm-hmm. Dukat continues to uh, return to the series. He's obviously important. He'll go be important going forward. What's your What's your take on the Cardassians at this point? Like in terms of their uniqueness or maybe not uniqueness. Like, what's your general sense of them in terms of the Trek series, all of them put together? They feel like original series Klingons, kind of. Okay. Uh, in that. So far, I feel like they've been, you know, they feel like the kind of race that they're pe- they're working with, but are also kind of being underhanded. Maybe they're not as uh, mischievous as the original series Klingons are. Yeah, but they have that same sort of like, you know, smile while they're stabbing you in the back kind of feel to them. Yeah, which I guess I don't know. I guess the the Klingons always kind of have that, but uh, I don't know. They feel different from the Klingons, but it feels like they still have that same kind of. Uh, uh, space space communist, basically. Yeah, the, well, the um, I think the original series Klingons have a little bit more of like a lightheartedness to it. Where right. The the, yeah. the DS9 Cardassians are are more underhanded in a sort of malevolent way. Yes. Um, yeah. And obviously through the Dukat conversation, the, the the way that they the way that they approach the Cardassians, in my opinion, is different in that the Cardassians are the some of the more complicated. To, uh, written characters because they never tell you the truth 
really. Mm. Like, they're, they're always lying. And the, the Klingons didn't have that. The Klingons would actually tell you the truth if you caught them in things. Right. The Cardassians don't do that. So it's very difficult to get the truth out of any anything that the Cardassians tell you. Um, I think that they're they're very similar, like you say, to the TOS Klingons in that they're very broad and the show doesn't really want to pigeonhole them and it wants to continue to expand them into different things like they mm. they do a whole bunch of stuff they're not just like the klingon fight for honor type they are imperialists they're slavers they're terrible people they're also super civilized in some points like they're uh they speak like they they're sort of intelligent in their conversation they're clever everything like that they are mm-hmm. they're a very broad antagonist i guess would be the way to describe it they can fit a lot of molds yeah, which I I appreciate because usually, <clears throat> usually the antagonists on these shows are they kind of have the thing that they do, and then that's the only thing they do every time you see them. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm looking at you, Ferengi, or the uh, the Romulans are the ones that or the Romulans, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they the they've gone out of their way to make the Cardassians a very um, adaptable for the situation villain and i by doing that they 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 make him they make them much more interesting and and uh, well-rounded as as a uh, as a part of the show and as characters yeah yeah I, I think. like I, I don't i don't expect I don't, I don't think you could really get something like you got out of uh what's his name harris Yulin's character oh maretza yeah yeah i don't know how how easy it would be to get that out of a, a lot of the other races uh, because the Cardassians do have so much backstory, and uh, regarding the the Bajorans and the other stuff that they've done, and it, it, it's just it's it it allows a lot of good different things to happen with them. Yes, they're not they're not as much of a you know I guess the hot term would be like they're not as much of a monoculture as the other races yeah. are perceived yeah. to be. They, there's a little bit of variance, and you actually haven't run it. You haven't uh, watched an episode with Garrick yet, which will be coming up soon. But Garrick is another uh, Cardassian on the station who's interesting. Um, let's see here. I think we're. I don't really. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about Homecoming? I mean, I think it's mostly the setup for Lee Nollis. Uh, we get a little bit of the Bajoran stuff, but that gets fleshed out in the next episode. We meet the Circle. We've we've gone through that. Uh, Quark gets branded in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'll talk about the Ferengi. I had complained in the first season that uh, the Ferengi didn't really, they claim to be capitalists, but they aren't really capitalists as much as like wheeler and dealers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, they actually, they kind of touch on the means of production thing a little bit where Quark takes seven times the amount of stuff that his brother gets yeah. and his brother claims it's not fair. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a little bit on the nose, but I think it's a its a way that they've portrayed the Ferengi that they've never actually done that before. And I think that it's, it's nice that it's different from the stuff that they did on, or, earlier. Yeah, and I, I like I like the way that they've been playing Quark um, <clears throat> in these two episodes, where he's you know he's still he's still a Ferengi, he's still you know kind of sleazy, but he is also doing good stuff, right? But even if know, he does, even if he's being forced to, he kind of will do yeah, good stuff, yeah. But he's also definitely still doing it for his own gain, yeah. You know, so it's it's I, I like that. Those characters are interesting to me. I will say uh, I didn't like the cold open of this episode. I thought uh, the two. I thought the 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 beginning and the ending. I thought were were pretty weak. Okay, the cold um, open ends with the court getting the earring, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think it it ends. Oh, he gives it, it to Kira. He gives giving it, to, it Kira. to Kira. Yeah, yeah. you know, it was one of those things where it's like 
it didn't it's it wasn't enough of a hook to for a cold open to me okay uh because she doesn't really give you any indication of what the, that thing is she just kind of takes it and like runs out of the room yeah I'll, I'll be honest i was more enchanted by the uh the technical changes more than anything like i was like wow the show feels different going into this one just in the way that people are playing but i, I agree that it's not a it's not a, a good enough thing they, uh, you know it's not even clear in the earring they have to sort of tell you it's a bajorn earring which i don't yeah, really realize yeah, i wouldn't it. have i wouldn't have picked that up at all unless they had mentioned it yeah i mean maybe that's to my own detriment because i haven't been watching all the episodes but it's i mean if you didn't either then I yeah, didn't clearly either. it's not yeah it's, it's someone has to just obviously come out and say that this is what this thing is yeah and you didn't like the the ending uh so i assume you're talking about when minister jaro who is uh the frank langella uh comes in is that what you consider the ending or are you going before that yeah, that part. Yeah, it just, I don't know. For a to-be-continued, it wasn't really, it didn't really have that much of a sting for me. Yes. You know, I'm not saying, like, someone needs to get, the screen needs to go black and a gunshot has to go off or something. But it just, I don't know, it seemed a little bit dull to end on. It's always, I mean, it's always the problem, and we'll talk about it in the next episode. She's a recurring cast member. You know, there's no, yeah. they're not going to get rid of her. If she's gone, she's gone for one episode and she'll be back. So it's, it's the... I think they do a better job of paying off that, but it's not a great announcement except for the fact that it, it kind of exposes. Uh, I think it's the first time we get to a sense that Jaro is not up to any good here. Yeah. Those sorts of cliffhangers remind me of uh, there's an episode of The Simpsons where they go to see Phantom Menace and it's just two and a half hours of trade talks. <laughs> and the the uh, the cliffhanger for the end of the movie is Yoda saying like, well... I guess that concludes our discussion of the adjusted trade routes. Right. Or does it? And then they cut to the end. And like that's anytime they have an ending like that, that's what I think of where it's like they're ending on something that it feels like it should be a big deal, but it doesn't really land. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's just I mean, especially compared to the next one, I think the, the next one ends on a much better note. So lastly, what would you think of the um, there's a lot of guest stars in this one. Would you would you think of the performances? I I liked Lee Nollis. I thought mm-hmm. uh Jaro was good. Langella was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't run into Vedic Win yet at this point. So I'll just say I'll go off those two people. Uh, would you kind of agree with that? Or you uh, you sounded positive about Lee Nollis. I thought he was a little stiff. Uh, but I guess it kind of that character kind of warrants being a little stiff. I guess I I liked him more before he gets kind of ironed out. Like after they uh, like up through when they capture him and up when he has the scene in the in the sick bay I really liked. But then after that he gets a little bit uh, um, I guess I guess wistfully aloof is a good way to, to, <laughs> yeah, right. to say. Yeah. Where he's always like he's <clears throat> he's constantly just seems like he's just looking off screen kind of thing. Which is fine. But because the character is kind of a weird if I was that character I would be stiff too because I wouldn't want to address people and people think that i'm this sort of you know uh savior yeah so he, he gets a new title and he has the line he's like what am i even supposed to do when he's talking yeah. to here at the end <laughs> it's like it, it is a it's a weird thing i, I want to talk more about him in the second episode because i think the second episode fleshes him out a little bit more mm-hmm. um but yeah I'm, pr- I'm done with this one do you have anything else you want to talk about homecoming no i don't think so no. um that pretty much covers everything all right frank langella is great Yes. Yeah, it can't be be sad enough. Well, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll uh, read off the patron thoughts. They still need you. But I am not the man that they think I am. Perhaps not. But Bajor doesn't need a man. He needs a symbol. And that's what you are. 
No one's asking you to lead troops into battle or to kill a hundred Cardassians with your bare hands. I saw you in front of the crowd in the promenade. They look at you and they see strength and honor and decency. They look at you and see the best in themselves. But it's all based on a lie. No, it's based on a legend. All right, everybody. So if you support the show on patreon.com slash if you give a couple dollars a month or even a dollar, I think you can post on the, uh, the post that I put out there. Let us know your thoughts about upcoming episodes and they'll get read on the show. We'll start off with uh, Holly McLaughlin. It says, The Homecoming. Love Kira and O'Brien's dynamic on the rescue trip. They have a really nice chemistry and make an effective team. The highlight is Leenala's scene confessing to the emissary, which is Cisco, that his big, brave act was mythic, and it worked really well, and it rang true on a story level, both for the episode and the overall arc of Bajor's recovery. Uh, we we kind of covered that. Um, I, I think I would I would slightly disagree with just the how true his characterization, like how far the legend would actually spread, would be my only concern about that mm-hmm. point. Uh, Zam Nuclear Wessel writes, Homecoming. Always <laughs> great to see Ben Horn, Lee Nollis from Twin Peaks. Although as time goes on, Gold Ducat sort of becomes a Ben Horn in space. Um, do you want to... I, I, which Horn is in the original series of Twin Peaks, right? Yes. What's, yeah, his, what's his characterization? He's just kind of a sleazy... Yeah, he's... Uh, um, he owns a hotel with uh, Laura, I believe... Laura Palmer's father is his his partner, if I remember correctly. And okay. uh, yeah, he's just he's he's uh, the father of one of Laura Palmer's friends, and you know he as the series goes on, he turns out to be this sleazy guy who. Well, spoilers, I guess uh, for a thirty five year old thirty year old t- TV show, um, he turns out to be running like this prostitution ring out of uh, the local gambling hall and all that kind of stuff. And gotcha. Yeah, he's just, you know, he's got a pension for younger girls and stuff, so he's, he's just kind of a sleazebag. Maybe that's the, uh, is that is that the prostitution callback here? Is that a callback to Twin Peaks with Kira? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> with that, uh, when Kira pretends to be a prostitute when she breaks oh, into the prison camp. Oh, 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 I, I don't think so unless, she, well, if she was dressed up like a, like a suit of cards, then yep. maybe. Okay. <laughs> Uh, because the prostitutes at that at the place in Twin Peaks have a uh, 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 card theme. Gotcha. Uh, Zam Nuclear Wessel continues, Everything works nicely here, although I try to forget the number of times that Kira pretends to be a prostitute during the curse of the series. I mean, hey, maybe she's just really... That's the one thing she's convincing at. Yeah. I mean, she says in the next episode she's not really an art person, so maybe she's got the one character she plays really well. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> she's got that rolled down. Although, even as a prostitute, she's just like a ball buster. Like, yeah. she's not like... She's not playing like a ditzy... She's not playing a prostitute. She's just basically playing Kira if Kira was a prostitute. <laughs> right, exactly. It's the... It's the... It's like... It's the kind of attitude, I think, that the Johns... Some Johns might not appreciate, and you don't know which one of them are willing to sort of smack you around a little bit. Uh, yeah. Not a defense of that, but it is basically she's just Kira playing a prostitute. What uh, actually would be great is if every time she played a prostitute <coughs> de- was dealing with a different race, 
but she knew what kind of prostitute that race liked. Sure. She's like the Troy so, of prostitution or something yeah, like so that. Yeah, so she like, that's like, you know, she, she seems very studious. So I'm sur- sure the first time she played a prostitute undercover, she did a lot of research. <laughs> so she probably could tell you what kind of prostitutes Cardassians like, what kind of prostitutes Ferengi. I mean, hey, Quark seems to be into her. Yep. So something seems to be working, right? Yeah. Although this... he seems to be into everybody. So <laughs> Yeah, he's into, he's into females. The, um... Quark, Quark, is like, Quark is like that character in... Uh, the early John Hughes movies, who's just like the weird, creepy friend who's just trying to, you know, look up girls' skirts, yes. basically. Yep, he's got mirrors on his shoes and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joint Mango says, The Homecoming, better than The Childs and The 37s. I'd agree with that. Those are other season two uh, opening episodes. Kyle Barrett writes, The Homecoming. The episode gets off to a slow start, but a nice. But once Kira and O'Brien leave on their mission, the pace picks up. Having an away mission is a nice change of pace for DS9, the location being a welcome diversion from the same old sets every episode. I wish they chose another way of deception rather than Kira prosing as a pos- prostitute. It gave me unwelcome flashbacks to Uhura's striptease in Star Trek V, but I admit O'Brien makes up makes up for by being a great pimp. The second half is where the episode really picks up, however, with the expansion of the politics being a welcome addition. Frank Langella is a good pull for the show, but I'm more interested in Twin Peaks actor Richard Boehmer, there is, there's his name, mm. who puts in an understated performance as Lee Nollis, his recounting of his true past being the highlight of the episode. Also played Tony in West Side Story. Yes. Why do I yeah. know that? There was some... Oh, I think that's a reference that someone makes, maybe. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, Stephen Cobb says, The Homecoming. Poor Tony. Guess the dance fighting against <laughs> the Sharks did a little to prepare Nihilus for fighting the Cardassians. Some very good acting from both Lee Nihilus and Minister Jaro. The episode's use of you would better come down here trope is pretty blatant. I uh, I will say in defense of the Kira as a prostitute thing, I, clearly it, it, it seems to be a running thing they do, but this is the first time I've come across it. Yes. Um, you know, when I said before that it, this episode ended up being kind of like Rambo 2, I it's kind of similar in that, like, in this situation, what else are you really going to do? You know, like, uh, uh, bringing a prostitute to the leader of the prison camp is more believable than if they were like, we're here to check the gas meter. Right, we're the three, wi- you know? yeah, we're the three wise men with, like, Muir and frankincense and stuff. Like, yeah, you have to like, kind you of know, bring in something. How else are you going to sneak a girl into a prison camp? Yeah, I... You know, I... I, I don't want to be I'm, too knee-jerky about the... Like, I, I don't think it's actually a bad situation really like i it, it makes sense to me that that's what they do going forward things might change but i think that it it makes sense here on a you know you don't even need the exposition of you know kira could explain the plan of this was the way that the resistance used to manipulate cardassian guards or something mm-hmm. like you could kind of flesh it out if you wanted to but I, I don't actually find it to be that big of a deal it's just it's just a weirder scene for me because they just just regular clothes just walk up to the gate yeah right, <laughs> right. matthew ross says on the homecoming arc of episodes uh first it always surprises me how much of babylon 5 and ds9 stole from each other have you ever seen babylon 5 i have not uh sean cordy talks about it like it's the holy grail of television yes I, I i've never seen it. it either and i sean would be my only insight into it uh i recall when i was at a party in la and hearing the banter between mojo debating mike okuda over whom stole whom's worker bees and drones if you look carefully, the ships are interchangeable. Case in point, the circle with its branding uh, with Bajor first is almost exactly like the Earth Movement, the Home Guard. I think I assume this is all Babylon 5 stuff, so I can't even comment, even down to their symbols. I could go even into the moving of the station in DS9 to B5, doing the same thing in its opening episode. But anyway, getting to the Homecoming arc, this was, to me, well done. The characters have some depth now. Even Bashir is not annoying and competent. Would you agree with that, Clay? 
Uh, yeah, he was fine. Yeah, he's, he's he mean, doesn't have a lot of scenes, but I think he's okay in this. Yeah, he's not. Uh, I don't. I didn't see him much in the episodes I saw before, but he seemed to be kind of bumbling yes. a little bit more. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. he seems to be less so in this one. I mean, he's only in it briefly, but he 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 transports out and he saves the guy's life, which is good enough for me. Uh, the political intrigue and the mysticism, along with the I guess sexual desires of Kira, seem to all be intertwined, but intertwined well. The rise and fall of the Bajoran democracy. Uh, or the Weimar Republic. The biggest issue with the extra who is front and center when Lee Nullis is at the replomat. I don't remember that scene. Is that possibly in the third episode? No, is that that must be when before he gives the speech <clears throat> to oh, the crowd. Oh, no, no. Oh, I know. Yeah, when uh, he's bringing them through and telling them that the replicator makes good food or whatever. Right. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. I, yeah, I don't, I don't remember anything popping out of me there. But Frank Langella is always at, at his best sleaziest. And Cisco Brooks's portrayal of the clear understanding of the politics only shows how he is uh, perfect for the position. It was a good start to showing why the series is distinctly different from previous Star Treks. Frank Langella has this weird condition that uh, his eyes um, twitch okay. un- uncontrollably. Well, I mean, he can control it, but it's something <laughs> he has to like, you know, has to like focus on. Sure. And uh, uh, <laughs> if you ever watch his the version of Dracula he did. Um, he uses that as an effect as Dracula. It's fucking creepy. Interesting. So like he's he's delivering like this you know operatic Dracula dialogue while his eyes are just like <laughs> vi- vibrating back and forth. It's really cool. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, he's uh, no, he's definitely he's definitely a great actor, and it'll be good to talk about him in the next episode. But that's it, guys. Thank you very much for feedback. Clay, what are you going to give this one on our one to five scale? We actually did, forgot to give a rating for uh, in the hands of the prophets the last episode. I gave it a three. I don't know if you remember what you gave it, but uh, sure. Yeah, he'll give I, it a three. Um, what the hell happened in that episode? That was so where we meet Vedic Win, the assassination attempt to the oh, basketball. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I would give that a three. Yeah, yeah. This one, I think I would give this one a four. Yes, I'd give it a week four. I think, if in in all things considered, but I, I think it's a. Uh, I, w- I was happy with this episode. I thought it was pretty good. Um, did you have any? You've already kind of talked about it, but yeah, if you if you give it a four, uh, sort of, w- what's the basis there beyond being just kind of solid? You thought it did something a little bit uh, different for you? Yeah, I thought it was. You know, it, it brought up a lot of interesting questions, and uh, you know, I thought it worked well. I thought the plot was good. Um, yeah, I just thought it was a solid episode. I thought it was, uh, based on the episodes I've seen, it was on the better end. Yes. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I'll give it a, I'll give it a four as well. It's kind of a week four, but I I do like the episode. I think it's a pretty good season opener and everything like that. So thank you very much guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can do all the things on YouTube and Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Follow us on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, rate us on iTunes. All that stuff is very much appreciated. You can also go to patreon.com slash Lipensky file couple dollars a month, you get extra content, you get extra podcasts. You also help support the show. And as always, our highest tier supporters get listed out at the very end of every episode. Stephen Cobb, Holly McLaughlin, Jay Stanley, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Magpie, Nest Productions, Ben Douglas, Tax Owlbear, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mango, Vincent Adultman, Tark Latif, Rune Vendler. Thank you very much, guys, for supporting the show. Much appreciated. We'll be back with The Circle coming up next. Um, is that it, Clay? Do you have anything you want to say? Any plugs? Anything? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, we're done. I guess that's it for uh, the homecoming, but we'll be back with The Circle in a couple days. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.